1 to 14. As you do that, let me give you just a little bit of background to the passage that we're looking at today. Uh, We're in the final week of Jesus' life and the air is thick with tension. Uh, The religious leaders are seriously rankled by Jesus. In chapter 21 and verse 23, they confronted him and they asked, by whose authority are you doing these things? In other words, who are you to come into this temple uh, to drive out our trades and to preach on our turf? And Jesus responds to them with three parables really to expose the religious leader's rejection of God. In the first parable, the parable of the two sons, it was God's authority that was rejected. In the parable of the tenants, it was God's son who was rejected. And in this parable, it's God's invitation, or you might well say God's grace that is rejected. And Jesus is telling these parables to not only expose their sinful rejection of him, but to highlight the consequences of that rejection. In chapter 21, verse 43, Jesus said to them, the kingdom of heaven will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And I think that's what this third parable really illustrates. So let's read Matthew 22, 1 to 14 together. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet." But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, ill-treated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friends? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father, we read in John's Gospel of a time when there was a great choice to be made over who Jesus was and whether or not his disciples would follow him. In John 6, many turned away, and when offering the same option to his disciples, Peter replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, as we can consider this passage today, we recognize that these words from you are words of eternal life. Help us to listen and to learn, to understand and apply. Uh, For Christ's sake, we ask it. Amen. 
Well, I was looking this week for a definitive instruction on the well-mannered response to a wedding invitation and found a book by a lady called Emily Post. Uh, early in the 20th century, she wrote a book which basically became the go-to textbook for etiquettes. Uh, she wrote it, I found out, she wrote it to stop men wiping their noses with their hands or spitting tobacco on ladies' shoes. See it making its way into a few of our stockings this Christmas, perhaps. But here's, here's what she said in relation to the, an RSVP to a wedding. If you reply within a day or two, count yourself among the civilized, the dignified, you are a credit to your parents. How nice. But if you don't reply promptly, if you leave your RSVP in the drawer for weeks, putting off your reply, you know, if you excuse your invitation with some kind of mundane alternative, Post says you are vulgar, indolent, oafish, what a great words, and ill-bred. How good is that? Well, harsh words? Actually, she justifies her judgment saying, if a kindly host considers you a friend and invites you to an extravagant celebratory banquet laid on at great personal cost, and you feel no obligation whatsoever to respond with haste or make effort to attend, you're no friend. If this is how those who break with earthly etiquette over an RSVP are judged, how can those who reject God's invitation to the wedding banquet of his son, a banquet laid on at great personal cost, expect anything different? The parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 22 says, we can't. And whether you were part of ethnic Israel back then or alive and well today, you, if you reject God's invitation, this parable teaches God will reject you. It's that simple. And I've divided this passage into two because I think we have two groups being addressed here. We have in verses 1 to 7 a picture of how God's invitation to the people of God under the old covenant is rejected. And in verses 8 to 14, it shows us how that invitation is then extended to all people everywhere. And in each of these two sections, there, are, there is a pattern, a repeated pattern, a repeated skeleton, if you like, of invitation, rejection, and judgment. So enough of the skeleton. Let's get stuck in, shall we, and look at verses 1 to 7. This is the first point, the invitation rejected. Well, the invitation goes out, but what have they been invited to? It's a royal wedding. Verses 2 and 3 tell us, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited, so that's the Old Testament people of God, to tell them to come. And isn't, just, isn't this just a beautiful way to describe the kingdom of God? Think about it. A wedding day is essentially a day-long toast to the happy couple. It's their big day. It's a good thing. It's celebrated. But it's actually more than that when you think carefully about it. It's accepting the invitation of a generous host to join them in celebrating the marriage of that daughter or that son. Somebody's gone to great cost to pay for that with a daughter of my own. I'm a little bit anxious about that. I'm kind of hoping she's going to be a, a missionary to an all-female tribe in the Amazon, but I'm not counting my chickens with that. 
But weddings, wedding invitations spell this out. It's the invitation of a host, a generous host, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so request the pleasure of Mr. and Mrs. Garvey to celebrate the wedding of Jimmy and Jean. That's, that's generally how it plays out. And I think that that's what God the Father has invited his people to do. Throughout the Old Testament, God has often used a wedding to illustrate this relationship between his promised Messiah and his chosen people, Israel. And the New Testament picks up and runs with this theme in wonderful ways, speaking of Jesus in lots of different passages as a bridegroom and as the church, his bride. And Jesus himself adopts the same imagery here to convey the king, God the Father, is holding a celebration and he wants to join, uh, he, join him specifically in honoring who? Well, when we think about weddings, who's honored at weddings? Think about what you have observed when you've attended. Who's the center of it all? Well, most would just say they're the happy couple. Or if you've seen or been the father of the bride and the host, he might well say, oh, it's me. But if you go by the number of compliments offered in the day, the time that one gets to saunter down the aisle at one's own leisure, or the number of close-up photos in the album, it's the bride, isn't it? I'm not saying that with any particular resentment, but it's the, it's the bride, okay? It's the bride, but not this wedding. Not this wedding. It's all about the groom. The banquet is held in honor of the son, for no one is more beautiful than he is. No one is like him. This is Christ, the Messiah. Emily Post said in her book, it's vulgar to refuse an invitation to a wedding that is laid on at great personal cost. Well, this banquet is laid on at the personal cost of the groom's life. He's died to make this happen. This is the costliest banquet Ever. And the invitation is going out to the people of God, chosen to be his own, to join him in honoring the Son, but so many won't. Incredibly, so many won't. Look with me, verse 3, they refuse to come. Why? I mean, you have to have a seriously good explanation and a seriously good alternative for rejecting the company of the king and the banquet to end all banquets, but apparently not. Look at the rejection. Verses five and six give us some of the RSVPs that Israel had sent out. And the first one just smacks of indifference. They're just not that bothered. Verse five, it says that they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. Now, I don't think that you have materialism in view. I think it's just trying to convey that the, the king's invitation to honor the son just isn't important to these people. And these characters offer a very good representation of many in Israel at the time. I mean, the Messiah is among them, proven his credentials by teaching with authority, backing that up with the signs and miracles that reaffirm and back up that authority, that words. But imagine missing the unmissable feast for something as everyday and mundane as going to work, or something worse, you know, sorry, I can't come to the wedding, I'm, I'm hoovering. It's just ridiculous. How offensive. That's offish. Well, the second group, though, they are, they're not just unbothered by the prospect. 
They're hot-headed, aren't they? They're, in, they're cross at the prospect. They're full of hostility. The rest actually seized the servants, it says, mistreated them and killed them. And again, this, these characters offer a pretty good representation of the Jewish leaders that Jesus is actually addressing here in this final week in the lead up to his cross. He picks up the charge of John the Baptist in the last parable he told to show just how murderous these people are with their rejection. This is no, oh, I can't be bothered. Let him do what he wants to do. This is, I don't like what you're saying and we're going to make you pay. And of course, all that we've seen in this section in Matthew's gospel from the start of 21 all the way through to the cross is them peppering Jesus with questions, not to learn, but to trap, to find some way of wiggling out of his command to repent and believe the good news. And what we're looking at in this rejection with these RSVPs is really opposite ends of the spectrum of rejection. There's variation in the degree of opposition put up. There's no difference in the fact of it. It looks different, but it's essentially the same. And all the gracious and repeated invitations of the king are just treated with contempt. They didn't want his company. They didn't want fellowship with him or to give honor to his son. And that's why we see the third aspect of this section, that he is enraged. That's why he brings judgment down on them. Verse 7, look with me. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, many people in today, not just in society, but even in the church, can have a very impressionistic view of God. They paint him not with the detail that his word provides, but in the way that they want to see him. They don't like passages like this that declare that God is as angry as he is generous. Now, don't misunderstand me. God's anger is not exactly the same as the anger we experience. When we think of an angry person, we think of red faces, loud voices, yelling. But God's anger is not like that. It's not sinful in any way. God's anger is not some kind of hot-headed, reckless rage it's his settled, righteous reaction to something that is terribly wrong. And in this parable, it's terribly offensive to refuse his invitation and to step out of line with him and all creation to refuse to give honor to the son. So how else would we expect him to react? When responding to his invitation becomes a matter for a person's indifference or hostility. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, it's wonderful that you're here. You're welcome every week. But if you're the kind of person who has never said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, please understand this about this passage. When accepting the king's invitation is seen as a complete waste of time, when the son's teaching is considered to be not just absolute rubbish, but even, well, it's fairly decent in terms of moral teaching. Or whether you even move to the point of persecuting believers or just get on with your job. How do you think God is going to respond when we decline the invitation to the wedding banquet of his son and refuse to join all creation in praising 
Jesus. Will he respond favorably to that or overlook it? I think this passage, with this, the authority of this passage, we can assuredly say no. He'll act in judgment against people who live like this because when we ignore the living God, what happens? I mean, we ruin God's world. We don't behave properly before him, before each other. We're constantly causing people, when we live our own way, we're constantly causing people to forget what life is all about. So when we don't come under the authority and the rule of this king, when like those in the parable of the two sons are disobedient, or in the parable of the tenants are fruitless, they don't think it's anything to pursue godliness and produce the fruit that he's looking for. We muck up our own lives and we muck up each other's. It rubs off. For all these reasons, God acts in judgment. He acts in judgment on the murderers and on the city itself in the passage. These religious leaders and a large number of the people they represent, they've been at loggerheads even though God has said at his baptism, this is my son whom I love, they say, I want him dead. Or at his transfiguration, this is my son, listen to him, they're saying, well, let's try and shut him up once and for all. Proving what we said at the start, if you reject God's invitation, God will reject you. That's point one. But what now? There's a big problem here. There's a wedding banquet and no one to eat it. And here's where we come in. Point two, the invitation is extended. Praise God. Verse eight, he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners, or you could translate that the crossroads, roads leading out of the city, and invite to the banquet, what's the word? What's the word? Anyone, anyone you can find. Anyone, that's you. That's me, every Tom, Dick, or Harry, proverbially speaking, not just particularly those with those names. Anyone, invite anyone and everyone to the banquet. So it doesn't matter what nationality you are, what age, what class, invite everyone is the call. It doesn't matter how good they are, no one is so good that they need not come. Everyone needs to come. And it doesn't matter how bad they've been, no one is so bad that they can't come. And if they accept this gracious invitation to join the host in this eternity-long toast to the sun, then let them come. Let them come. What were you like before you accepted this invitation to the wedding banquet, brothers and sisters? What were you like? Were you good? Or were you bad? You might say, well, your theology is wonky and we're all bad. Romans 3, I said, yes, I know, but it's a parable. The parable's making a point. For example, Nicodemus in John chapter 3 technically was a good guy in the eyes of the world. He'd read the Bible. He'd try to live a good life. But when the invitation came, Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Though the pattern of his life was fairly decent, he was not saved. He still needed to accept the invitation to come. Or what about the thief on the cross? He was a bad guy in every sense. Every minute of his life was spent rebelling against God's authority, except for his last when he, with his dying breath, admitted his own guilt 
and asked to be remembered by Jesus when he went into God's kingdom. And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise at the banquet. There's a place setting with your name on it. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that typically gracious of God? I mean, we do not deserve, do we, to be invited to this wedding banquet. I don't know what you think about yourself, but I don't think I should ever have had my name on the guest list. It is a matter of absolute, it's just incredible. But because of his grace, I can take my seat at the table of the king and enjoy his forever company as I praise his son, my savior, forever. And you get that privilege too. Isn't that amazing? You don't look like it's amazing, but I'm going to take it that you think it's amazing in your hearts. Well, we can't. Verse 10 says that we can enjoy this company. The bad as well as the good were gathered in, and though I think that's the most remarkable statement, the wedding hall was filled with guests. Don't pass over phrases like that. The wedding hall was filled with guests. Heaven will be filled with those whom God has called. The banquet won't be canceled. The wedding hall is filled. Now that would have been a nice place to stop, but the parable doesn't end there. Not only do we have invitation in this section, we have rejection. The parable does end unexpectedly, just in case and I think just in case anyone in this day and age, you know, proudly condemns the religious leaders back then for refusing the Messiah, refusing the invitation, Jesus actually shows us in this that it's possible for people like us to make a similar mistake. In verses 11 to 13, he introduces us to a wedding crasher. And when the king comes in to greet his guests, everyone's looking great. They've scrubbed up well, except for one guy who sticks out like a sore thumb. Verse 11, there was a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Now, I don't know how you'd like to picture him. I, I picture him for some reason in Bermuda shorts and a Hawaiian shirt. And uh, the sh I know, uh, the shirt it has hot dog stains down the front. And actually, do you know that thing where the buttons are done? They're not done up properly, so the shirt's lopsided. That's exactly how I imagine this chap. He's just not made the effort. But who does he represent? And what are the wedding garments? What are the wedding clothes that are in question here? I think there are two possibilities. Um, one, the wedding garments could just represent faith. So the broad context of the Bible teaches that our good works, of course, are like filthy rags. We can't scrub ourselves up. We need new clothes. Uh, Revelation 19, that great picture of the wedding supper of the Lamb, the wedding banquet to come, uh, says that God provides the wedding clothes. It says, hallelujah, the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Beautiful. The other option that others offer say that these wedding clothes represent the transformation that the gospel brings about in us. So the immediate context of the parable actually makes this possible in a sense. What is God looking for from his people? Well, the first parable said obedience. The second said fruit. 
And many argue that this wedding garment then is, is our growing into the likeness of Christ. It's the obedient fruitfulness of the Christian faith. It's, it's evidence of the fact that we have been cleansed, that we have been forgiven, that we are walking in his ways. It's, tr- it's, it's proof of the fact that we are, throughout our Christian life, putting off the old self and putting on the new self, okay? All of that language is there in the New Testament. Now, if it's the first, the man, that's that. Could you turn that off for me, please? Is that okay? Thank you. If it's the first, the man is ejected because he thought he could come in by some other way, by good works, for example. But if it's the second, the man is ejected because he actually hasn't been transformed by the gospel. It hasn't had an impact on him, and as a result, demonstrated that while his, he's at the banquet after all, you know, while his acceptance of the invitation to the banquet has been made, it's not a proper acceptance. It's like he's given some kind of notional assent to it. Oh yeah, I quite like the thought of being at the banquet. You know, this is a guy who maybe comes along to church because he enjoys being a part of the community and so on, likes all that, likes all the benefits of being around the church, but never actually professed faith in Jesus Christ himself. So his acceptance isn't genuine. He's as indifferent as Israel was making no effort. It's like the wedding banquet doesn't mean a thing to him. And in a strange way, whatever we think, his clothes reveal his heart. His clothes reveal his heart. And what do we see? Well, in the end, he's judged. He is judged. Verse 12, he's called to account, but he's absolutely speechless. And no one, when called to account before God, will disagree with this judgment of them. It's so right, there's nothing to say. There's no objection I'd like to speak to this. I'd like to give a reason for this. We'll say you're perfectly justified in ejecting me from your presence. And that's what happened to this man. He's thrown out of the presence of the king into darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a common depiction in the gospels for hell. Like those belonging to the people of God invited under the old covenant, he proves actually that he's no friend. He's actually rejected God. And he serves, his judgment serves as a warning to everyone. It's like Romans 11 for us. In verse 21 where it says, for if God did not spare the natural branches, that's Israel, he will not spare you either. And he also proves the proverb of Christ that many are invited, but few are chosen which tells us that all are called in the general sense of the word, but only those who truly believe the gospel and are transformed by it are, if you like, the called called. And others who say they'll come but refuse to admit the norms of the kingdom are rejected. Those who remain are truly called chosen. Truly chosen. What a parable. What an incredible picture of the kingdom of God. Let me close with some brief application. 
Uh, let me speak to you again if you're here and you're not a Christian. If you've never looked at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and thought, wow, he did that for me. He died for my sin. And he rose again three days later that I might have new life in his name and a place at his banquet in eternity. I want to make this clear, the thing that I made clear at the start. If you reject the invitation, whether by casual indifference or outright opposition and hostility, you're no friend of God's. And this passage says, if you reject him, he'll reject you. And to be rejected by him means eternal separation from him. It is described in no uncertain terms in the Bible with graphical imagery like weeping, gnashing of teeth. In other parts, in the book of Isaiah, it says that it's actually it's preferential to die under an avalanche of jagged rocks than to face eternal separation from God's. And I would not be dignifying your attendance here today if I wasn't really honest about that. This passage then calls on you to respond, not to turn away in indifference, but to turn to him in repentance, to say sorry for your sin, and to trust in God, to trust that the blood that was shed on that cross 2,000 years ago by the Lord Jesus Christ truly does what he said it would do. It would cover your sin. It would take away your sin. It would make you right with God. Would you believe in him today? All you have to do is say, sorry, thank you, and please. Sorry I sinned against you. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. Please come into my life. Help me to live for you. You might be a churchgoer coming because you like the community or the singing or for some reason other than the worship of Jesus. This parable calls you a wedding crasher. And if you crash the wedding, it won't go unnoticed and it won't go unpunished. And this passage warns you too of the need to repent. Going to church makes you a Christian as much as going to McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. It doesn't work that way. You need to trust in Jesus for yourself. Please do that. Maybe you don't know how to do that. Um, we would be really happy to help you do that. There's a, a book called The Word One-to-One -one that we love reading with you. It's a way of exploring the Bible together. It's a way of reading through John's gospel in this instance, bit by bit, verse by verse, helping to explain it to you so you can make an informed choice about this. Please do, speak to one of the stewards or myself after the service. We'd be delighted to talk to you about that. There's a prayer team down the front after the service as well. Why don't you come down and talk to them about it and ask them to pray for you. They would love to do that for you. There's a Glad You Asked course that's taking place just now as well which is just, a, a, it's a course, uh, a set of studies that look into some of the key questions and objections that people have uh, that might stop them from becoming Christians. It's fantastic. It looks at the, sim the same stuff that we're looking at today. Why don't you do that and find a way to explore this further? It's too much hangs on this to reject it and just leave with indifference. Look into it, please.
Well, if you're a Christian here today, um, how does this apply to us? I do think it speaks to us in two particular ways. There are other ways that it could be applied, but time's gone. The first thing we have to do is, is do what Jesus expected the religious leaders and all that they represented to do. Produce fruit in keeping with your repentance. 2 Peter 1 tells us that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and grace. And as a result of being given and endowed with that power, Peter says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control. And on he goes. In other words, show the fruit of your repentance. What change is taking place in you? You might have seen some change when you first believed the sins that you once practiced as a non-Christian, you've put off and by God's grace, he really helped you to do that, but you've kind of plateaued. You need nudged, you need prodded. Are you growing? Are you in a small group? Are you having opportunity, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week to be encouraged by the word to let it speak truthfully into your lives with accountability from the brothers and sisters in the church family so that we might grow into the likeness of Jesus. For that's, his, that's the Lord's target for us. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That's the target. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Roll up, roll up your sleeves. Let's, let's get to work and pursue holiness with all diligence. The second thing for us as Christians Realize that the, the job of the servants that we see in 8 to 14 has been handed to us. Christ began this work of calling everyone to the banquet. Acts chapter 1 tells us that the apostles continued that work. And now the, the baton has been passed to us and we continue it. So what do we do in relation to this gospel? We invite everyone. We are indiscriminate with the offer of grace. You ever do that thing where you look at someone, maybe you're handing something out at the front, or you're, you're having a conversation with a f group of friends, and they say something, and you see an opportunity where you could introduce something of the Christian faith into this part of the conversation, but you make some kind of judgment of that person and think, oh, they're just not going to accept this, are they? Well, don't do that anymore. Invite everyone, tell everyone about the glories of this banquet. Next time you go to a wedding, tell them, I've been, I've, got, I'm look, I've been looking forward to this wedding, but I'm looking forward to an even better wedding. Just make sure it's not the host. <laughs> and tell them about Jesus. Tell them about what it's like to, for this eternity-long toasting of the son who died and rose again that you might have life in his name. There is nothing like it. And spread the glories of his fame here on earth and practice for what it's going to be like in heaven. Yes? Tell everyone. Let no one pass by. As Spurgeon said, let no one go to hell unwarned or unprayed for. That's our job. So let's pray and ask for God's help in doing it.